Welcome, fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week, we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Hello, friends. Welcome to my bunker. I'm in my shed, which is an office, which is at the moment some sort of battle bunker ready for whatever's coming our way. I hope you're well. I hope that you're sane. Uh, I hope that you're safe. So let's keep in touch with each other. Let's keep talking to each other. Do keep sending me emails. Maybe we could even start some sort of group where we can start to swap ideas together. Anyone who's getting through this needs to do it together, right? Okay. Mark 3. This is a key verse or chapter in the Gospel of Mark. In fact, it's so key that a scholar named Ched Myers wrote his commentary on the Gospel of Mark, and he actually called his whole commentary Binding the Strongman after the story that we're about to look at in Mark 3. I, can I just pause here and, and recommend Ched Myers' Binding the Strongman, a political reading of Mark's story of Jesus. I'll put it in an email to you so you have it. But this is, I'm not even exaggerating, this is the best commentary of any book of the Bible I've ever read. It actually changed my life, and one cannot say that about biblical commentaries uh, very often. In fact, I have never said that about any commentary except this one. I'm not even exaggerating. Um, Really changed the way I was able to read not only Mark, but in fact, all the other Gospels in the New Testament as well. There are other people I'm drawing from, absolutely. I'm not just a slave to Chet Myers here, but boy, is this guy a, a pillar in the work that I do. And a- anybody else who's encountered him knows this is true too. He's a Mennonite. He's a working in, I think he's he's an American guy, I think, but he, was, uh, he works amongst Mennonites and the Anabaptist crowd. And he just has written the, one of the most insightful commentaries of the Gospel of Mark. It's, it's pretty good. Very impressive. Binding the Strongman. And his, like as I say, he uses, in fact, this story of Mark 3. It becomes his, the, the, the motif or the, the, the mechanism by which he's going to read the rest of Mark. And one of the key things, I mentioned this in, in a previous episode, but what you get is the story of Jesus is marching around the king around the land he's drawing together people into his new kingdom and how he gets people is that he essentially breaks the siege of whatever is binding them and brings them out into the open and then they follow him so this is the this is an underlying idea of Jesus's people are coming out into the open out of whatever has held them down and are joining his movement his kingdom and so what that's gospel, right? The rightful king has come to break the siege. This is the gospel. This is the action of King Jesus. This is what he's doing when he says, come follow me. Faith means be with me, be seen to be with me, be on, be with me, be on my side, have allegiance to me. There's a whole lot going on here in Mark, which is about kingdom building, not religion building. And the story here of of Jesus binding the strong man 
and then releasing the goods out into the open is, is what how Chad Myers and others have said. This seems to be a, a, a central plank in or a key to understanding the story of Mark. And the idea here from Chad Myers, he, his, his language is that he says there's contested areas, contested areas. There's spheres of influence that Jesus is showing his authority over. And sometimes in the gospel, the sphere of influence is, is an actual person who he has to uh, show authority over. Sometimes it's a, an abstract idea like racism. We're going to see that very sh shortly when Jesus talks about the, the uh, woman who's a dog, the throwing crumbs to the dog. Uh, sometimes it's the whole sphere of linking purity to sin which we saw in the last episode. Sometimes it's the Roman sphere. Sometimes it's the temple sphere. Sometimes it's families and inherited traditions. Sometimes it's nature. Every time Jesus shows authority over nature by walking on water or making food or calming the storm, he's demonstrating his authority over a sphere of influence and a sphere that has been contested. There are other forces and powers or people that are claiming influence in that sphere and Jesus identifies the power then binds it and then releases the goods and the into the open air and the goods are always people and they usually end up becoming his followers or he identifies himself with them in some way so this is just an idea to, to keep track of to notice and it's happening here and the great story comes at the beginning of Mark, which which helps to interpret the rest of it. Much like when in Mark, Jesus will tell a parable. Mark has Jesus tell one parable. He then explains the parable, which is of the sower. We'll see that soon, too, which is of the sower throwing the seeds. And then so Mark tells, has Jesus tell a parable. And then Jesus immediately interprets the parable for his disciples. And then there is no more interpretations after that. And it's like Mark is front-loading into his book, into his gospel, um, the keys to interpreting the rest of the Jesus story. He doesn't keep going on and on and on, explaining every single parable. He just says, this is how you can explain parables. Here's the key to doing it. And likewise, I think this Mark 3 story is front-loaded at the beginning of the gospel. It's a stuff about Jesus and his self-imagination and what it is he thinks he's doing what he thinks of his followers and so it's like a way to pattern the rest of the reading of the of the gospel so that's the way i approach it and this is the way i'm drawing from people like ched myers and i will put i just reminds me i will put some other readings up i'll email them to you and or i'll maybe put them on my website and so that so that way you can I'll show my my workings and you can definitely follow along. There's some good people I recommend. Chapter three, Mark three. And again, Jesus entered a synagogue. So now we're back in the sphere of synagogue sphere. And there was a man who had a hand that had been withered. And they observed him closely to see if he will heal on the Sabbath, that they might bring an accusation against him. So again, think of all the spheres of power and influence right now. Synagogues illness so the actual physical illness as well as the social meaning of what was in what people saw when they saw a man who had been withered they thought he was a sinner they thought he was impure they 
thought he was socially should be socially ostracized. They are observing him closely to see if he will heal on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is another contested area which Jesus has just shown his authority over. Mark 3, the Lord, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Yeah, sorry, Mark 2. So uh, now we're just immediately in. Don't, don't let a chapter break fool you here. Chapter breaks. Mark did not write with chapter and verse. Mark just wrote one text. It's only later on that we've inserted our chapters and our verses into these texts. So don't let your imagination be colonized by the invention of the chapter and the verse, which leads to all sorts of weird interpretive issues. This is a continuation. This is within one breath of Mark 2. Mark 2 has ends, thus the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, and then immediately following, he goes into the synagogue and they're worried about healing on the Sabbath, okay? So this is just a continuation of this story. And they're going to try and accuse, bring an accusation against Jesus. So he says to the man with the withered hand, stand up in our midst. And he says to them, is it permissible on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a soul or to kill? But the people were silent. And looking around with anger, mortified at the hardness of their hearts, he says to the man, stretch forth the hand. Similar here to the anger that he showed when the man with the skin diseases comes and says, the temple couldn't clean me or declare me clean. And Jesus says, I'll do it. Now go show yourself to the temple. There's, there's a anger here. There's a passion. Let's just remember that the claim when Rome killed Jesus, the claim was here is Jesus king of the Jews. So it was a political frame over him. And when the Pharisees and the teachers of the law wanted to kill Jesus, the charge against him was he's threatening the temple. Jesus, uh, and these were charges that stuck. King and temple threatening. Jesus was not a pliant, religious Jewish guy. He, every time he makes a comment about the temple, he's there. it's edged with anger or it's edged with dissension or it's edged with putting it back to rights. He's constantly criticizing the temple in word and deed. And even when he heals, he's doing something that should have happened in the temple and he's doing it on himself. Stretch forth your hand. He stretched it forth and his hand was restored. And going out, the Pharisees immediately exchanged counsel with the Herodians against him that they might destroy him. Verse 6. Look at verse 6, everyone. First of all, Pharisees. Pharisees, I remember they are the group that dealt with Roman occupation, the impurity that was on the land that came through Roman occupation. They dealt with that by keeping to the law, keeping pure, gathering in the synagogue. They had a synagogue law-based uh, Judaism. And they dealt with, 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 the, with Rome and the, gen the fact of Gentile taint on their land they dealt with it through scrupulous keeping pure through the law the herodians who were they they're the followers or the camp associated with king herod king herod is the puppet king the half quasi jewish man set up by the romans to rule over jews king herod is a race traitor the herodians are accommodationists 
you would maybe even include in this the, the Sadducee camp could sometimes be included in this because Sadducees were a temple-based form. Their imagination was centered around the temple. And so, uh, and it was Herod who built the temple. So there are groups here that are in constant, deep conflict with each other. And the Pharisees and the Herodians hated each other. They saw each other as the Herodians saw that their compromises with Rome was what was keeping the doors open, which was keeping the society going and preserving heritage. And the Pharisees saw the Herodians as traitors to the race, traitors to the cause. And now, verse 6, they hate Jesus so much that they're joining together. Gives you some sense of where Jesus was on the political spectrum, the triad here. He's not fitting on any line that belongs. He's not a Herodian or a Pharisee. Okay, the other thing to point out. This man with the withered hand in verse 5 has just been restored. This is not in doubt. The Pharisees see it. Nobody is doubting. Nobody is saying Jesus is a con man. The healing did not happen. It's all in their heads. The Pharisees see the healing and immediately plot to kill Jesus. This is the difference between faith and understanding or recognition. The Pharisees do not doubt that the miracle happened. They have witnessed it. And that is the point at which they have the greatest offence. In the presence of the miracle, the miracle does not force them to become followers of Jesus. The miracle offers a point at which they now have a choice. Are you offended or are you not? Are you going to be seen to be with Jesus and his way or are you going to go against it? This is the function that miracles serve in the New Testament. They are not knock-down evidence for Jesus' divinity. More often than not, the people who witness a miracle want to kill Jesus immediately afterwards. Mark and the other gospel writers are not embarrassed about miracles. They are not trying to explain them away, but they also are not trying to load the miracles with a burden that the miracles aren't supposed to bear. Miracles are not proof of anything. Miracles are an opportunity, a crisis moment breaking through in which a human is thrown back onto their own need to make a choice. A crazy thing has happened. Now what are you going to do about it? And if it's just as an aside, it's worth mentioning or pointing out that if if Jesus really is the Son of God or the Word of God or God incarnate in any way that Christians say he is, then one of the first things you learn about God through Jesus is that you can say no to him. You can say no to Jesus all the time. If Jesus is God, then God is not a dominating force. He doesn't force you to do anything. In fact, more people who met Jesus were offended by him then believed in him, then followed him. And this is one of the features of the personality of God. And if you remember that the kingdom of heaven or heaven just means where people say yes to God, 
Well, I guess hell or the kingdom of man is where people say no to God. And this is a valid option. And in fact, it's the option that most people take. And it's possible. If it's possible to say yes to God, that means it's possible to say no. And a lot of the Gospels are about people who say no. And then what happens? And how those strands are woven together for good. How Jesus submits to people saying no to him. And, and refuses to bully them or dominate them. And how goodness emerges out of submission to evil without trying to dominate and control it. So, again, there's politics here, guys. There is politics right here in these verses of what power is and what you do with it, and what you, how, how followers of Christ handle the power they have or what they do in the, in the presence of it. And uh, a lot of it has to do with domination and control. And even the miracles of Jesus, even the points on which he's most obviously divine, are not moments of being a dominating bully. Verse 7, Jesus withdrew his disciples to the sea. And the Oclos, the great multitude, follows from Galilee, as well as from Judea. And from Jerusalem and beyond Jordan, the environs of Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, hearing what he does comes to him so uh there's lots of different groups here won't go into it too much but i mean basically these cities and towns and regions they're not all the same social class and they're not all the same uh cultural heritage so this is a lot of different types of people gathering together and jesus goes tells his disciples that a boat should be standing by so that they would not press in on him for he healed many, so that as many as afflictions fell on him in order to touch him. And the impure spirits, when they gazed on him, fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But, messianic secret, he gave them many stern instructions that they should not make him known. And then uh, Mark 3, verse 13, he goes up into the mountain. There is no Sermon on the Mount in Mark, there's one in Matthew, and there's a Sermon on the Plain in Luke. There's no Sermon on the Mount in Mark, but he does go up to a mountain, and it's at that point he summons the Twelve. And I told you last time how there's more than twelve followers of Jesus, but there are twelve that have been summoned. There's this team that has been chosen. Twelve, no-brainer really. It's the restoration of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's the restoration of Israel. Jesus the Messiah is drawing together a new kingdom, which itself is a restoration of Israel. So he draws 12 people together out of the multitudes that are surrounding him. And he makes the number 12 that they might be with him and he might send them out and to have power to exercise demons. Remember, exercising demons was not part of the toolkit of a prophetic man of God. And here it's being invented by Jesus. And power to exercise demons or to rebuke demons is, again, it's power of control over chaos. It's the power to bring order out of chaos. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that's hovering over the tohu wabohu in Genesis 1. 
and uh, the demons are agents of chaos, agents of impurity. And remember, to know their name is to have some control over their destiny. So to rebuke or to exorcise a demon is often to be able to speak, uh, to know their, where they're going. It's to command them. And we're going to have a look at what Jesus does with commanding demons uh, when he's in the, um, the herd of pigs. The commanding part of demons will show up. Um, and he made them 12 and he gave the name Peter to Simon at this point. Peter means rock. James, the son of Zebedee and John, the brother of James. He gave them the name uh, sons of thunder or it could be sons of anger. They uh, later on are the ones who are going to want to call down fire on the uh, disbelieving village. So they seem to be sons of thunder or sons of anger. They are rebuked for that, by the way. This is not an affirmation of their their character this is a change to their character and then you get a list of some other some other people including simon the zealot uh, verse 18 so remember that you have uh um, matthew was the tax collector right tax collectors raised by rome to collect money on behalf of rome over the over the uh jews so they are also race traitors. And then you have Simon the Zealot. Zealots were a faction, a group of uh, freedom fighter types who dealt with Rome by fighting Rome. But as I said, it's quite hard to fight Rome when they've got all the spears and the shields and uh, helmets with red brushes on their heads. So uh, uh, what you do is you kill other Jews who are seen to collaborate with Rome. That's who you kill, really, if you're a zealot. And it's just worth pointing out, Jesus had a zealot and a tax collector on his team. Zealots killed tax collectors. Tax collectors hired soldiers to protect themselves against zealots. And they're both on Jesus' team. Giving you some flavor of the kind of socio-political group that Jesus is gathering around him. And what it looks, what must it look like when people looked at the Jesus movement, just imagine that. So much of the stories in the Gospels is them is people trying to figure out who Jesus is. What's going on? And it's not just that they're worried about his divine identity. They just frankly can't place him. He doesn't belong. He's, he hangs out with tax collectors. He loves them. And yet he also is uh, got zealots on his team. And he's hanging out with Galileans. And the Galileans were the the real region hotspot for freedom fighters and brigands who were opposing Rome. And just and he spoke with a Galilean accent, and yet he was also going to heal Roman soldiers' children and servants. And he heals elite daughters, and he heals poor nobody women with bleeding. And he just uh, does not fit in any of these categories. And it's also worth pointing out, that Jesus' own team and his own actions is an evidence of enemy love. It's not just that Jesus isn't just loving enemies in theory. The people he's associating with would themselves have um, caused offense to other groups, right? So when Jesus heals people, like there's certain levels of people, certain people get healed, which the crowd around would have seen them as the enemy and Jesus heals them anyway. Uh, so you've got to notice that there's a lot of enemy love just in the way Jesus is actually carrying himself and gathering his people around him.
And then you get Judas Iscariot, verse 19, who betrayed him. So it's again the beginning of the seeds are being sown here, that the enemies are ranging, the dark clouds are gathering. So he comes into a house, and again the crowd assembles so that they are not able to even eat a loaf of bread, or there's no room to move. Can't swing a cat. And his relatives, hearing this, come out to seize him forcibly, for they said, he is out of his mind. Um, verse 21, Jesus' own family is now. We've just had Judas Iscariot, we've had the Pharisees, we've had the Herodians. Now we've got his own family. You are insane. You are causing shame to our family. It is worth pointing out. Um, do you know, there isn't, a, I don't think there's a single story in the Gospels in which Jesus is unambiguously pro-blood family. And it's so crazy to me. You get all these conservatives and family value moral evangelicals who, who are always talking about family values when time and time again, there's not a single word in the verse in the New Testament where Jesus is unambiguously pro-family values. More often than not, his birth family shows up as, as an, a hurdle to get over or as somebody trying to pull him back. Um, even when he affirms things like uh, marriage between men and a woman, he's doing it to spite the Pharisees. <laughs> um, even when he says things like honor your father and mother, he's doing it as a, as a way to, to show the Pharisees that they've got their priorities all wrong when it comes to giving tithes, but not supporting their own family. So I'm not saying Jesus was anti-family. He's not against it, but there's no time when he just gives your mother, father, and birth children unit of family life his rubber stamp. Um, even when he's on the cross in the Gospel of John and he looks down and he sees his mother and he says to the beloved disciple, you know, take care of my mother. Well, he's just created a blended family. That's all he's done. Um, Jesus is constantly, the family unit is one of the spheres of influence that Jesus is showing his authority over. He releases people from their inherited uh, identity and sense of obligation to the family unit and he releases people from that and he prioritizes it and he puts it back in its box and people say oh I want to follow you but first let me go bury my father and show my family duty and he says anyone who let the dead bury their own dead anyone who doesn't look like they hate their mother and father can't be part of the kingdom so he's drawing such a stark contrast between the family unit of the kingdom and the family units you were born into. But I think it's just worth bearing here that this is part of the offense that Jesus caused. This is part of why they had to kill him. Because he wasn't just affirming the common sense of the day. If what you said was everyone love your mom and dad and everyone obey each other and uphold traditional family values, if that's what Jesus really was about, nobody would have killed him. Come on, people, get with it. Right, rant over. <laughs> There'll be more of these, don't you worry. So the crowd is here and his, his own family want to remove him. He's insane, they say. And then the scribes come down from Jerusalem and they say to him, he has Beelzebub in him. Beelzebub 
is the uh, Prince of Demons, or if you the Lord of the Flies. He has the Lord of the Flies in him, and he exorcises demons by the Archon of the demons, by the highest demon around. Jesus is only having this authority because he himself is one. He has Beelzebub in him, and calling them over, he spoke to them in parables. How can the accuser exorcise the accuser, or the Satan? We already talked about this before, how the Satan or the accuser is a being of, he's some sort of son of God character, angelic or quasi-divine character who's been given the role and rule of nations. And it's his job, he was the highest uh, in the throne room, and it was his job to rule the nations, and he's done and doing a bad job. Remember, we're talking about authority here. How can this guy have authority over demons? It must be because he has the authority of Satan. And Jesus looks at them and says, how could Satan rebuke himself? And again, kingdom language. If a kingdom is to be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Remember, Jesus' own family has just said, you are beside yourself. You're insane. Their household is not going to stand. And if the accuser has risen up against himself and has been divided, he cannot stand, but has reached an end. But no one can enter the strong man's household and plunder his goods, unless first he should tie that strong man up, and then he can plunder his household. Uh, Verse 27, here we are, right? I'm just going to end with this, and then we'll talk about the other stuff later. But the strong man's household, a lot of people, if you're going to talk about in modern mythic language, A lot of people are waiting for the Messiah to be like a brave heart, like a King Arthur, this nationalist folk hero who's going to rise up in the nation's greatest hour of need and is going to sort of uh, gather the weapons and gather the armies and kick out the foreigners and kill everyone and redeem the land. This is what people want. They want a brave heart. They're expecting a brave heart. And what does Jesus do here? He basically says, I'm not Braveheart. I'm Robin Hood. I'm going to sneak in. I'm going to steal from the rich and release to the poor. (laughs) And if you really want to extend the analogy, is Jesus living in the wilderness with a band of merry men, robbing from the rich and giving to the poor. Jesus says, I'm the thief. I'm going to enter the strong man, the, the Satan figure. The one who has been given authority over the, who has authority over the land. I'm going to break into his house, plunder his goods, tie him up, and then plunder his goods. And the word goods here is, uh, or possessions, in verse 27, is the next time we're going to see this word is when Jesus cleanses the temple. And the people cannot, the temple officials cannot carry their goods from one end of the to the next of the temple no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he should first tie the strong man up this is what i'm going to do says jesus i am tying up the rulers of your spheres that are uh, that you're in that have locked you down i am tying them up and i will release the goods out into the open and the goods are always people So watch out when you see this happening that you don't commit the 
eternally unforgivable sin. That seems like a really good place to stop. You're going to have to wait a whole day before we talk about the eternally unforgivable sin. See you soon. Welcome back, friends, to a discussion, a debrief session about Mark 3, 1 to 27. And to join me as we bounce ideas off of each other is Sean McCoy and Chris Marchand. As always, we're joining each other from our lockdown huddles, <laughs> our little hubs, and we are chatting to each other from across the globe. Sean, Chris, thank you for joining me in the tent. It's very nice to see you. Always, my friend. And we were doing, let's see, Mark 3. So Mark 3 was a whole lot of crowds following Jesus. There's some demon action. There's a whole lot of challenges to our imagination. Sean, what do you think about this? What was, what's going through your mind when you read Mark 3? Well, you, you always change. You know, part of the whole mantra is this idea of imagining something differently or, or right. embracing a concept with a different uh, perspective. One of the things that I've been struggling with uh, and unpacking is this Aristotelian kind of Greek um, Western way of, you know, right and wrong dualism Okay. and uh, trying to find authority and then through knowledge, all, all of us, I mean, obviously you're hmm. from an academic standpoint, the most accomplished of the three of us, but we, I think we all have a, a, a love and an understanding and a belief that as we, as we learn more, right. right we gain knowledge that that's going to bring about some sort of, you know, collective uh, maturation right. or improvement on what we're looking at, what we're doing. And so I think sometimes, I know for me, for many, many years up until recently, read the Bible that way. would read it more along the lines of kind of, here's the encyclopedia, here's the reference book. It gives me authority uh, through knowledge. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Around the topic. Right. Yeah. And so and I think we do this so often that we don't even realize we're doing it as we're doing. It's this, it's the very essence of, of watching, being around somebody talking about cognitive dissonance as they're expressing their own. Okay. And so, and so if you can imagine if as a listener, we can take, because one of the things we're trying to do here for our listeners and for ourselves is what do we do with all this stuff, even outside of the political realm, the modern, the contemporary political realm. Right. Are you asking the so what question? Like, so what that Jesus did this? Not even, not even the so what. Okay. It's more of a, is there a deeper... Is there a deeper interpretation of what it is that we're listening to and how we can take it? Not okay. see this is this is the other thing about it is the the typical reaction if you counter something is to then dismiss it. Okay, right, right, right. Versus right. Versus, right. versus do you have the whole throwing the baby out with the bathwater? So instead of it becoming well, if the Bible isn't inerrant, if the Bible isn't the true authority, then then it must not be anything. Yeah, right. right. And that type of dismissive language then yeah. then as the context comes around. When you're reading Mark three or any part of the Gospels or any part of the Bible at all, then if the mindset is how is this true, I I, I think there's a, so much we're talking about translation last week. We're talking about we all know this in our basic conversation, the context and the intent of the words can get completely lost. Yes, right, and especially over time and even your own interpretation, the rest of this stuff. And so that's, and I'm I'm going very very broad here around this because this all impacts as you listen to those stories, as you, as you understand what's going on in our, in our, in our hype and our ex excitement around finding these nuggets that then evidentially prove something. And this is coming from somebody who has Bible verses on wood panels mm. from Hobby Lobby all over my house, you know, giving me these little like nuggets to go, okay, 
there's this, you know, here's, I don't have Jeremiah 29, 11, but I have all the other stuff up there. Right. Yeah. And, and so just, but even if I did, because the, 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 the irony is that you're trying to find inspiration from that phrase relative to your context. Yes. Uh, in that moment, not yeah. actually what it means. Right. The imagination right. part that I'm trying to implore and to bring people into is stop. If we can stop for a moment, trying to find validation and, and evidentiary proof in some sort of knowledge base and then ask, what hmm. what are what are we what is it trying to do for us in, in terms of how we how we approach it at the moment and then how do we go outside of the world that we're in and continue to to, to bring forth this is that temperament this is have i can't remember sean have you have you read any of kierkegaard or have you come across some kierkegaardian stuff so, about this before so listening to you talk and listening to the oh okay so just me, <laughs> just no, me. So I'm saying, it's inspired me to want to go back and listen but i'm kind of because you're very you're being very kierkegaardian here to the point where i was wondering whether you were actually good about to start referring to him because he made this distinction okay. between objective truth and subjective truth and and he's specifically talking about the bible and scripture and revelation really okay. uh, of divine truth and he says truth is subjective which he doesn't mean you've generated the truth from within yourself by the way he's not saying that but what it means is uh the it's about the subject like you are a subject you're not an object and god is a subject he is not an object a subject is a person and so the truth of knowing god to say i know god means you if you don't know god as a person if you yourself haven't personally appropriated these things, and if you don't know the personality of God, then you can't say you know God. You could maybe sort of say you know about God, but that would be objective truth. And, and Kierkegaard uses the example of a table. He says, ob object, if you want to know something objectively, like a table, you push it far away from you so that you can see it in all its angles and you can see it all at once from a dispassionate distance, mm -hmm. which is fine for tables and mathematics. And it's good, like it's a useful thing. Objective truth is very useful. The problem is that's just not what knowing a person is like. If, you wanna, if I wanna know you, Sean, I don't send you as far away from me as possible. <laughs> I can right. only say I know Sean if I talk to you, if I take time to listen to you, if you argue with me. And then I can say, oh yeah, I, I'm getting, I'm getting to know Sean. And this is what Kierkegaard means. He says, truth is subjective. Yeah. yeah. And the Bible is not just a series of, of objective data, which you can download into your brain. It's right. you're supposed to, the truth of the scriptures is that you actually, well, like they say, eat this word, you eat it. Right. It becomes part of your cellular makeup. Right. So, yeah. so I think it, it's so if the, if the natural reaction is to use this thing that we learn, not for our own benefit, not to be egotistical, but if I'm like, okay, well, I know this truth and now I got to go over to Chris's house. Yeah. And get all of his family members together and they just sit around a table because I love them and they're wonderful people. And yeah, hey, right. by the way, this part of the Bible that y'all been reading, yeah, hey, right. it's all wrong. Right. Here's the right version of it. Right. And, and it just, in my and experience, you bludgeon him with logic. Yeah. And, and look, and I'm, I'm constantly, 
dumbfounded by by cult leaders and how they manage to get people to do what they do. And I yeah. can't get hardly anybody to believe anything that I believe, you know, let alone, even in my own family. You know what I mean? Like, is this yeah. weird? I'm like, how do you get? I wish I knew like, how to manipulate people. I'd have no idea. You hear about I, these like narcissists who know yeah, how to manipulate what, people. I'm like, I don't even, I wish I knew how to do that. <laughs> how did David Koresh get some guy to get all these guys to give up their wives? You know, like, I was like, what? How did that conversation even come about? But anyway, it's a little nuanced. But wow, well, last week we talked about the Oculus, right? The itching yeah. ears. Like, uh, no, we all have some some buttons in us that if somebody learns how to press them, we will follow them. It's surprisingly commonplace that this happens. The itching ears hear what they want to hear. So, 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 kind of, so, yeah. No, you're so kind of back to so. My my Kierkegaard is a guy named Alexander John Shia, who actually who I found like I've apparently found everything I've learned in the last couple of years through the Nomad podcast, which we shout out to Nomad. Yeah. Yeah. So he was on there, but he talks about, and this is what I want to imagine from, from a listener standpoint, is a little bit of imagination around instead of reading the gospel, instead of reading Mark, instead of reading any parts of the Bible, specifically the gospels themselves, though, around an idea of it being this inerrant factual resource that we can then somehow use right. as a multi-source area. Well, I got four different sources and yeah, yeah, can't yeah. really figure out why they're four different stories, but I guess you know, maybe they just remember differently or whatever, but here's these four personal accounts. And we're, because you were talking about it in the episode, you know, who was, who is it, who gave the, you know, what was Paul's influence in there? Who gave the account, Peter right, being post, right. you know, these were, these were these resources. And so this, and, and that all leads to, and I know you weren't trying to do this, but, but it tends to where we go, give that validation and that, and that right. uh, authenticity around. Yeah. Right. And, right. Even though, even though the, even though back to Peter, it's like he goofed it up all the time. So then it's like, well, who do you trust? You trust the goofball who was in the in the beginning of, in the middle of it, who didn't quote unquote do it right. But and yeah, I think even that's wrong. And so it's kind of this stepping back. And what Alexander Shai talks about is this is this idea of quadratus, which is he took uh, the essence of these because he's a, he's an anthropologist and he's a, a clinical psychologist, rituals and people and communities and tribes and how we go through through changes and how we go through stages in life and how we evolve and how we transform. And then he, so to cut this short a little bit, but he basically lines up the four gospels with the four paths of a journey around transformation, which is ultimately what I think um, th this is about. And what I was getting at from Mark's standpoint was the second path, the first path is stepping into a challenge and into an opportunity. The second, yeah. second path is dealing with issues and how you deal with issues. And if we can imagine reading Mark less around authority and more around it teaching us. Okay around how do we deal with problems? How do we, how do we go up against obstacles? How do we go up against, I like uh, that. We've, stepped, we've stepped into this world now, yeah. but now we, now, right? I just started a new job this week. You, you moved to England, Chris, you, you start something else. Uh, you know, yay, that's the first part, that, that first initial step. But as soon as you do, the rains come, good and bad. Versus do you, I feel like, Sean, you're talking about Mark as a, as a text for discipleship. Yes. I want to throw to Chris at the moment because Chris is unlike you and me, Sean, Chris actually is a leader of other Christians. <laughs> that is his job as a, as an ordained priest in the uh, Anglican church in America. Chris, do you ever, have you ever thought of the gospels as discipleship manuals as opposed to information transmission vehicles? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, this past Sunday, uh, our one of it was a All Saints Day, so it was the beginning of November. And uh, one of the passages that came up, we have a lectionary, you know, so we have these set readings. And so I, I had this crazy privilege. Sometimes when I preach and a certain passage comes up, 
and, and it's a certain passage and I, and I go, oh my goodness, how do, how can I preach this text? <laughs> yeah. I, I approach it with fear and trembling. And so it was the Beatitudes. It was, uh, you know, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And I thought, yeah. how do I preach this? And basically what I labeled it as was, uh, instead of seeing this as, this is the list of all the things that we should do, uh, Jesus is saying, you need to be this, you need to be poor in spirit, you need to right. be a pure in heart. Instead, it's a description of how, of who God's people already is. Already who, are, yeah. Who already are, who we are becoming. Right. So I asked everybody, where do you find yourself in the Beatitudes right now? And what I described itself, I said, you know what? I describe myself right now as a peacemaker. I felt, I feel called to this. Mm-hmm. But then I flipped it. I said, guess what? I'm a terrible peacemaker. I grew up in a family of strife, uh, arguing all around me. All I wanted to do my whole life is hide. I wanted to get away from conflict. Yeah. I wanted to avoid emotional turmoil. And whenever I get caught up in trying to make peace, I get so emotional and I get hurt and I get offended that I get so emotionally involved that I can't make peace. So yeah. what, I, what I was admitting in front of all my people was, the thing that I feel most called to do, I'm awful at. And I, and so, and, and in that sense, Stephen, uh, I am asked, and I, and I put it back on them. Where are you at? What, what might you be awful at doing that God is, is calling you into? And where do you see yourself in this, in this text, in the Beatitudes? And uh, so, so, so the answer is yes, it wasn't so much of, you know, let's parse out all the meanings and, and, you know, things like, things like, uh, and it is important to do that. Like we, we, I, yeah. we still go around. Like, what does Jesus mean when he says poor in spirit? Like we, we need to, like, it's, it's a kind of a confusing text. And so we do need to talk about that. But at the same time, yes, it was this, it was, we were coming around the words of Jesus and what does it mean to follow after him? And together? it's, it's back so. to good old Kierkegaard again, because once again, he is brilliant here because he even uses those kinds of texts that you've just mentioned of like, all right, fine. There is there is an interesting, trivial argument to be had about what exactly does this word mean. And fine, that's a legitimate, objective reality. But we spend, he basically says a lot of biblical study is, and Christianity, actually, the, the whole apparatus of Christi- Christianity is effectively designed to protect ourselves from Jesus. And so we we go, well, we can't possibly be poor in spirit until we know exactly what that word means. And we, we substitute the knowledge of the word from the actual just doing it and trying it out. And we're like, well, maybe there's a debate about exactly what that word means through the ages. But what if you just tried being poor in spirit or tried acting that way for a while and worked it out? Maybe, maybe you could try different ways of being poor in spirit. It's the, the truth of being poor in spirit is not in knowing all the different translation variations. And in fact, Kierkegaard describes it as he said, it's like, he said, Christianity or biblical studies and theology and official Christian preaching is like a a naughty boy that knows he's about to get a spanking. And so he goes away and he stuffs a whole lot of napkins down his underwear so that when he gets the spanking, he doesn't feel the pain. And he said, all of this preaching and books and everything is basically just us shoving napkins down our underwear so we don't feel the pain. When Jesus says, sell all you have and give to the poor or be lowly and, and humble and poor in spirit. We're like, oh, what does humble mean? Ooh. And we spend all our time <laughs> padding ourselves. 
Uh, I mean, it's, I was thinking, Chris, when you're talking about, you're talking about Matthew, but in Mark, even in this passage, I'm going to exercise my, um, my seamless ability to bring it back to the subject here in Mark, in Mark three, when Jesus empowers the disciples, which is slightly similar actually to the kinds of stuff you're talking about with the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew here in Mark, he gives authority to the disciples. And what he does is he gives them his, so the same stuff he was doing in Mark one to two, casting out demons, healing the sick, bringing order out of chaos. He then says to his disciples, now you go and do it. And their identity, he's affirming something in their identity that they never thought was possible. And the point of the story is not that they then sat down immediately and got a master's degree in demonology. And what is a demon? And how have different Mediterranean cultures understood the demonic realm? They, he's like, go on and do the work of bringing order out of chaos. And they did, which is a discipleship type activity, not, an, not a scholarly activity. Yeah. Don't, there's, there's an undercurrent of that, uh, Stephen, that I, I always I find very interesting in terms of power distribution. It's one of the things we talk about all the time is power. Yeah. And I, I think of it not only from a standpoint of, of, of Jesus in the moment, but also just God in general. If, if, the under, if the underlying desire was power and control, I would imagine that the creator of, the, of everything would just make it happen. That's kind of, yeah, like, right. What, exactly. What all this, yeah. what, what, why, all the, why all this... To, to make us kind of figure that out on our own, if that's yeah. the real goal. Yeah. I mean, if that's really what the divine was interested in, it would just, we would just all be in the line somewhere. God is very, listen, if God exists, God is very inefficient. <laughs> yeah. so, so then and just, if God is the measure of all goodness, that means efficiency is not good. <laughs> right. well, it becomes, it becomes mind numbing. So I think or inhuman. Back. Right. It can right. be inhuman and anti-life to be ruthlessly efficient. Right. So, the, so, the, so this, this, this pushes us to say, okay, so what's the, so what's the deal? Right. Yeah, so right. What's, what's the point of all this? And, and we see, and what, I, what I, I'm always impressed by in terms of the, not just the words, but the actions of Jesus is it's, it's, it's having this ability to have to, to bring power within and not use it and then give it away. I know. I know. So, and he's doing it right here in Mark three. Yeah, right. he's doing it right here, and it's yeah. just it's 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 the, the, with the disciples. Even yeah. even something as mundane as like physical resources around feeding people around, it's never. It's always about you and, do it, and, yeah. right? Yeah. Or I'm gonna yeah. give it. I'm gonna let you. It's, it's giving it away versus yeah. harboring control. Because it's part of this vision of re knitting together creation or reforming so- social life or society, and let's not skate too quick over that word society because your eyes can glaze over and you can be numbed by how common that word is but a social life means you are not alone you are connected every single human no exception is connected to another human every single human no exception has something to give to another human every human no exception has something to receive from somebody else and and if you find somebody who thinks that they're alone or acts like they're alone you're actually just finding somebody who's now living in a state of unreality. They've broken out of the reality of human existence. They're not living a, they're living a kind of a malignant life. And the, the work of the kingdom, when Jesus is pulling all these people together and then empowering them and sending them out again, is he's reforming those human networks and those connections that we have. And he's saying, now you've got, here's what you have to give, or here's, I want you to give this. And there's that all that stuff going on, which is why, again, do you remember last week we talked about the Sabbath and how 
evangelicals and Chris talked about this, about how Christians tend to just immediately think it's a religious word when really it's a social word about human institutions and forms of life and habits and weekly patterns. And, and Jesus is reforming it. He's reforming society around him and he's empowering people to make decisions about how they think they are related to each other. Chris, what are you going to say? Well, so this, this relates to something you brought up in, in, in this, uh, this chapter where you brought up how Jesus had a zealot and Jesus had a tax collector. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you asked me about my own sense of being a church leader. And I was, I was thinking that, you know, to, to make a decision as a leader, off, it, it automatically brings someone under fire, you know, because there's going to be pressure yeah, right. uh, based on how those decisions are made. So I was putting myself in, the, in Jesus's place. Hey, hey, guys, I just wanted to let you know, I'm, uh, today we're bringing on a zealot. And, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, I've been talking to this tax collector guy, too. And I, I think he's a good candidate. You know, I think he might be a good fit for us. And so <laughs> the other people, they're going to be like, <laughs> he's doing what? Yeah, right, uh, right. The zealot is going to kill the tax collector after two days, and this is going to cause significant internal strife. <laughs> well, and his own family said he is out of his mind. Mark three. <laughs> they say it right here. That's right. That's right. That's yeah. right. So, so this understanding of Jesus reordering our yeah. social relationships, and, yes. and Jesus is actually going, no, we, these people are called. These people are called, and they are in. And they're yeah. being transformed and we're transforming each other. I mean, it's a great challenge to me. It's a challenge to me as a leader in the sense of being willing to step out and make tough decisions and maybe bring people together that would never be brought together. And to take that risk, to know that the spirit is leading and to know that God is going to be with me in those tough decisions. That's, that, that's my own challenge there. So, And the reforming of society becomes front and center by the end of this chapter, which I know we're not discussing yet, but by the end of Mark 3, he will have reformed family around him. They'll say your family is outside. The family that just said you're out of your mind. Right. And then there's a little interlude to talk about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which we will discuss in a second. And, uh, and, then, and then his family shows up and Jesus says, well, who are my mother and my brother and my sisters? Oh, the people who are with me, they are my mother and my brother and my sisters. And he's this is as explicit a reformation of social life as you can find in Mark. And he does it around him. And that's part of what the whole ad. So first of all, that's part of the goodness of Jesus. Like people are attracted to it. The minority of people are attracted to it. The majority of people want to kill him because of this. I don't know if it's any different today, regardless of how many people like to sentimentally talk about the name of Jesus. I don't, a lot of those people don't like the idea of reforming family, for example, around that, that, that isn't related to nuclear family or blood heritage. How many Christians today are quite happy with the idea of redefining family? <laughs> not a whole lot. <laughs> well, not, well, not just redefining family, but redefining it. And then who gets, who gets brought in that family? Yeah. And who gets brought into it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, also note that the tax collector who is a race traitor is not affirmed in his tax collecting race traitoring and the zealot who likes to violently kill race traitors is not affirmed in that they're both on Jesus's team, but they don't stay unchanged. Mm -hmm. It's not like by bringing a tax collector and a zealot onto his team, Jesus goes, well, I am now pronouncing all tax collecting and all zealotry perfectly good. 
that's not what's happening. He's he's rechanging their identities and he's saying you both have to leave something aside to join me on my journey for sure. So it's not like oh all blue people and all red people are all green teams and all yellow teams are all political parties and spectrums are all equally valid and welcome in the, in the family of Jesus. It's like actually it's kind of the opposite. It's no political spectrum is 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 welcome because it no political spectrum is affirmed the people are asked to come anybody can join and anybody who joins is asked to lay down the thing that they're clutching tightly to and anyway it's easy for me to point to other people and wish they would lay down their political affiliations and i have to think about mine <laughs> i really do have to think about mine too for sure and i find that very hard i mean you guys we're, we're all living in a state of intense aggravation and and anybody who even suggests like chris if you just suggest that rich mullins might be political and you're attacked for it and it's just i don't know how do how are we uh how are we doing let's do a soul check how are we doing with the family of jesus when it comes to our clutching tightly to what we think is really important how have you been noticing any uh challenges to that in your lives right now well, I think I think we feel like we're failing based on expectations that are unreal. Right. And, and that is and that is the biggest I think it's one of the biggest hurdles is there, what does that look like? And that we have some sort of idea that by bringing somebody in or by or by you know, what it should look. We have, we have no the imagination. This is the mm -hmm. imagination part of I mean, Jesus yeah. tells us to trust. It doesn't say it even it doesn't even mean it's going to work out. It doesn't mean it's going to be easier. None yeah. of that is promised in terms yeah. of the physical world. Right. Yeah, it's 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 all very well to say, oh, everyone is just should join the kingdom of heaven, but we have so little sense of what that might look like, because we've been so ill-served. I think by our apparatus, our Christian apparatus has not actually been very but, good. But, at but I do think we I do think we get glimpses of it now more than ever. If, yeah. if you've been around a multicultural, if you're around a group of people or an organization, yeah, uh, or anything, even friends that are in that diversity, like a like I was yeah. like gumbo down here in the south. Of the United States what is this special kind of uh, soup, if you will, that, yeah. that the the Cajuns, which are the, with the French influence, yeah. it's this wonderful, it's literally like everything in the kitchen sink is put yeah, in, this, right. in the soup. And it's, and it's one of these things, if we, if we can, if we can, it's almost like the ants, what Jesus talks about. It's like, if we can just understand that that's the collect, there's a beauty, if you can get, if yes. we can just hold on and believe yes. when, that, when that soup comes to boil and when that colony comes to, to fruition, now all of a sudden the beauty of all of it together is going to make sense. See, I think that, so Sean, I think you're absolutely right. I don't think it's as easy as, as being hopeless and saying it doesn't exist. The kingdom never exists anywhere. It's just a standard that we can't live up to. That's not actually true oh. because I think this stuff like Mark and the gospels, they help us recognize the kingdom when we see it. Right. Exactly. That's what I think. Cause it does happen. You do see it. You do see people, relating together or forming bonds together or laying down their lives for each other. It does happen. It might not happen on the big scale. It might not happen in celebrity Christian culture, but it happens all the time if we would have but eyes to see it. And I think the gospel work helps us recognize it when we see it. It helps us identify what is good and then to say why it's good, why gumbo is good. <laughs> well, and I think even, even more than, I think even if, if I can expand upon the imagination of good into the ancient three questions there. So, you know, is it good, true and beautiful? I've, I've kind of in my own right. world, we hash those into 
is it beneficial? Is it harmonious? Is it beautiful? And what I mean by beneficial right. isn't because good, bad can become dualistic. And that's just my own little personal yeah, thing. Yeah. But is, is it beneficial? Is there a benefit? Is there an intimacy? And is there a, is there an expansion upon what that is? It's not, and it's not that just you know, having one friend is a bad idea or only knowing certain friends. That's not bad in, unto itself, but it's more beneficial if you have a cadre of people, a cadre of voices yep. rather than a few. So we stop looking at it from a good and bad pass or fail kind of thing and more of an incomplete and more of a, an opportunity to go further, go deeper, go more internal. Mm-hmm. And I think the journey, then it's a much, then the, the worry, the hopelessness goes away. And now it's like, Oh no, I can find, now I can go down this road. Mm-hmm. And also it's not an inner thing. So the, the gospels are not meant to be read by yourself in an internal private way. They are a, a, a discipleship manual for a group of people living in kingdom type social ways. It's not a, private manual for self-reflection it's it's a this is how we live this is the story of us and what we do right now there is a main part of mark which was the blasphemy against the holy spirit and i very sneakily well do you know what to be honest i didn't sneakily do this it just happened this way but i'm going to turn a virtue out of a necessity and i'm going to say to everyone if you want to know about the eternal unforgivable sin against the holy spirit you're going to have to listen to the next episode of this Mark study. And to listen to the next episode of this Mark study, you're going to have to become a patron to Tenth Theology. At patreon.com for the Tenth Theology page, you can support the work we're doing here for as little as $5 or £5 a month. And anything you give is so helpful to let us keep doing this thing. And what I'm doing is I'm releasing the entire study of Mark onto the Patreon page. And we are going to be going line by line, chapter by chapter through the entire gospel of Mark. And we decided that we would just release the first four episodes here on the podcast, just to give people a taste for it. But we didn't want to impose all of Mark (laughs) onto everybody. That seemed a bit much. If you don't want to sign on for all of Mark, then you don't have to. But if you want it, It's there for you over at the Patreon page. And the very next episode in the series will be the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is probably the most complicated and disturbing passage in perhaps all four of the Gospels. So I can't think of a better one to start your Patreon adventure with. (laughs) It wasn't part of the plan, but I think we realized "Ah, that will work. That's a good place to stop. So let's stop there. We're going to leave you hanging at the eternal sin against the Holy Spirit, which seems a really wonderful way, Sean and Chris, to send you off into your week. (laughs) Try not to commit the sin against the Holy Spirit, and I'll see you next time. (laughs) Thanks, friends. Thanks. Bye. Love y'all. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about Tenth Theology at www.tenththeology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.